everybody. Welcome back to Poem Peeps. We are back with another Rapid Fire Journal Club episode. Uh, as always, now joined by Luke Hedrick, uh, our associate editor, who's been running these Rapid Fire Journal Clubs and really keeping us informed on these great trials. Hey, Luke, how's it going? Hey, Dave. Uh, happy to be here again. Um, feels like it's not been that long since we were just recording. Yes, seriously. It's always nice to be back here doing it. Thanks for you know, walking us through all through these trials. I hope it's beneficial to everyone. I think we've been hearing some positive things. I hope you're getting a, a big repertoire of trials to reference on rounds and impress everyone as well. Oh, yeah. No, this has been great for me. I, I need to read all these papers anyway for fellowship. And so it's a, a nice way to keep myself accountable, too. <laughs> ah, I love it. I love it. All right, let's dive into the next one. This time we are going to be talking about the novel Stark trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. We'll share a link on our show notes. This is uh, called the Controlled Trial of Budesonide for Motorol as Needed for Mild Asthma. Uh, so Luke, why don't you tell us about the background of where we were before we had this trial come out? Yeah, so when this paper came out, we knew that mild asthma, obviously while it has this lower symptom burden, the risk of exacerbation is still pretty high. In fact, 30 to 40% of asthma exacerbations that require an ED presentation occur in patients with just mild asthma. And we also knew that inhaled corticosteroids or an ICS reduces that risk, but is infrequently used in mild asthma often because patients have mild symptoms. The use of an inhaled steroid and formoterol as needed is an alternative strategy that had shown some promise in double-blinded RCTs but the generalizability of those to real-world practice was limited. Yeah, totally. And this is the interesting thing about asthma, right? It's a disease of flares and exacerbation by definition with some normalization between them. Certainly when you have severe disease, it could become more chronic. And it does feel weird to put someone on a medication long-standing to prevent exacerbations when they're totally fine in between and they may have seasonal exacerbations. They don't want to take a medicine year round. So looking into how we can do some as needed medicines for these mild diseases, decreased burdens for our patients, but also on the healthcare system was certainly much. So why don't you tell us what was the study designed to try to answer this question? Yeah. So this was a, an international trial. It was run in New Zealand, the UK, Italy, and Australia. It was a randomized open label parallel group controlled trial. And an interesting observation about this one is that in med school and residency, I feel like I would often reflexively think of an open label design being a weakness of a study. But I think this one here is a good example of how you have to think about what question your trial is actually trying to answer when you're critically appraising its design. And so here, the open label nature means that they don't have to use any dummy inhalers for blinding which lets the paper then assess some of that real-world benefit of the simplicity of just using an as-needed inhaled steroid and fumarol. And so you could argue this design, this open-label design, actually helps the external validity here. Yeah, I totally agree. I think these are really interesting. Obviously, we've talked about RCTs and being double-blinded, triple-blinded, as much blinded as possible. It gives you the most pure answer. But then there's a lot of data coming out now about how well RCTs actually translate into real-world practice. And some of that is because of the design, the generalizability, the inclusion and exclusion, but some of it is about the treatment effects. And if you are observing something that's as close to a normal treatment circumstance, then you sometimes can get a more accurate answer that you could apply to your patients. 
So what main outcomes were we interested in for patients? They looked at a lot of things in the studies. So what, what are we going to focus on today? Yeah, I think for us, the headline thing to focus on and their primary outcome was the annualized rate of exacerbations per patient. Uh, and here they defined any exacerbation as when someone had worsening asthma that required an unplanned urgent visit. So to your PCP, to an urgent care, to the ED, or getting admitted to the hospital. If that worsening asthma required systemic steroids, or if they needed 16 puffs of their albuterol in 24 hours, or eight puffs of the ICS for Motorol in 24 hours. And so this composite of, did the asthma get worse such that you needed an unplanned healthcare visit, steroids, or were you just using your inhaler a ton? Yeah, that's great. And then it's also always important in these asthma and CBD trials to find how they're thinking about severe exacerbations. And in this case, that was saying they had steroids for three days, or they went to an ED visit that went for steroids, or they got into the hospital. Always interesting that we define the exacerbations with how the patient gets treated. And so we have some control, quote unquote, about the severity. But I think it's usually pretty clear when a patient has an asthma exacerbation that they're not doing well at home, that they come into the hospital, they come in for a visit, or that we're really giving them steroids, that they have something going on. Plus, minus every once in a while, someone might get steroids when they're really doing okay and they fall into an exacerbation. But I think it's a, a fairly good definition of what we care about with these patients. So I love, Luke, that you always tell us about the inclusion criteria and then who these patients are, who are the patients we actually got into the trial. So for this trial, who are the people we're bringing in, who are we leaving out? And then at the end of the day, what kind of patients were we looking at? Yeah, so looking at the inclusion criteria, they enrolled people who were age 18 to 75. On average, they were about 35, who had a self-reported diagnosis of asthma from a doctor that were using only a short-acting beta agonist for their asthma therapy in the last three months. They could only use it um, no more than two times per day, but at least twice in the last month, unless uh, they had a severe exacerbation in the last year, in which case there just wasn't a minimum requirement use of their inhaler. About 54% of them reported using that short-acting beta agonist like albuterol two or fewer times per week in the four weeks prior to enrollment. And then when they were excluding patients, really they wanted to exclude the highest risk patients and then people with potentially confounding comorbidities. So if you had been admitted for asthma in the last year, if you'd ever been admitted to the ICU for asthma, you were excluded. If you had used oral prednisone in the six weeks before the trial started, or if you had prednisone on hand for PRN use, like we sometimes do in our really high risk patients, those people were excluded. You had COPD, bronchiectasis, ILD, more than 20 pack year smoking history, or really patients that you would think have undiagnosed COPD playing a role. Those patients all got excluded. Clinically significant cardiac disease, or an FEV1 of 50% predicted or less at enrollment. All that got excluded. And so taking a step back and summarizing, these were young adults with mild but poorly controlled asthma, not on maintenance therapy, without any significant cardiopulmonary comorbidities. Yeah, and I think they did a really nice job defining these inclusion and exclusion criteria, especially saying, oh, you could have a severe exacerbation, but it can't have been one that you were admitted to the hospital for. If you weed through the inclusion and exclusion, they're threading a needle for people who could have gotten steroids, but mostly are well-controlled in between, but still end up having episodes where they need to engage with further care. 
And these are exactly the patients where it's tough to treat. They have this question. We know it's safe that they don't have to be on longstanding maintenance therapy all the time, but what's the best way we can keep them out of the hospital and keep them healthy with as needed therapy, or maybe it would end up being maintenance. So I think a really nice cohort that they ended up with. All right, so then what did we do to treat these patients? What were the interventions that we randomized the patients to to study? Yeah, so they took 675 patients and they randomized them one-to-one to 52 weeks of either as-needed albuterol, budesonide maintenance with as-needed albuterol, or a combo inhaler of budesonide and formoterol to use as needed. And then they stratified according to country. All patients got an asthma action plan based on the arm that they were in, and all inhalers that they used in the trial had electronic usage monitors that recorded the date and time of actuations. People were withdrawn for treatment failure if they had a severe exacerbation, if they had three total exacerbations that were at least a week apart, or if they had unstable asthma that required a change in therapy, and the kind of definition of that was left up a little bit to the treating clinicians. Yeah. And certainly those two prior things you said would be this type of thing that we would hope they would get a change in therapy on, but if they had something else as well. And yeah, this is a rigorous trial. They have monitors, they have written asthma action plans. Like we should be doing this for all our patients, especially the written asthma action plan, but this is a well-studied, it's not just providing people inhaler. All right. So then the, where the meat is, what did the outcomes to come to that between the different arms? All right. So looking at the exacerbation rate, as needed budesonide formoterol lowered the annualized exacerbation rate compared to as needed albuterol with a relative risk of 0.49. But it did not lower it compared to budesonide maintenance. The relative risk there was 1.12. The time to first event also reflected those differences as well. When you look at severe exacerbations, the as needed budesonide formoterol had fewer, fewer of them compared to the as needed albuterol. It also had fewer severe exacerbations when compared to the budesonide maintenance arm as well. The risk ratios there were about 0 0.4, 0 0.44, the two comparisons. Yeah. And I think we can pause there and just look at exacerbations. This is very interesting to have already. We've seen some significant findings. What's your sort of takeaway in terms of exacerbations for these types of patients? And then we'll talk about symptoms and some of the uh, other uses as well. Yeah, I think the headline takeaway here is that as-needed budesonide formoterol lowered your exacerbation rate compared to just albuterol. So using the inhaled steroid does seem to help. And that while using it as-needed didn't lower the overall exacerbation rate compared to people who were on a maintenance scheduled inhaled steroid, the exacerbations that they had were less severe. There was a 56% relative risk reduction of an, a severe exacerbation. Yeah. This is pretty major, right? You're saying that you can have the same benefit for as needed as if you had a maintenance inhaled corticosteroid, that we really shouldn't be doing this as needed albuterol alone anymore. We'll do another journal club thinking about people who are on maintenance and actually using your maintenance inhaler as your PRN, sort of this uh, smart strategy, but that's for another day. But the mainstay of therapy that used to be this PRN albuterol alone Really, I essentially never use anymore unless somebody's come to me and they say they have albuterol and they've been doing this and they've been well controlled on just that. 
Otherwise, I go right to an as-needed inhaled corticosteroid, and I feel comfortable not putting them on the maintenance right away if their symptoms are controlled in between based on this data that actually, hey, maybe your uh, exacerbations are going to be less severe and you're going to be as well protected. Yeah, and I think, too, this, I'm getting a little ahead of our, our journal club schedule here with the SMART therapy, but this, I think, is part of the evidence for that lighter end of smart therapy where patients can titrate up and down how much they're using their inhalers. And this, I think, supports the idea that they can back down to just using their inhaler as needed if things are going really well. And so I think yeah. this fits into that constellation of, of evidence really nicely. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who are listening who don't know about SMART, we will definitely do it. And it stands for single maintenance and reliever therapy, essentially using one uh, inhaled medication as both your maintenance and uh, PRN, but a future journal club to come. All right. In the last few minutes, let's talk about a couple other things. You can let us know if there are any subgroups that we have to care about, but then also about any symptoms control that we should take note of within the outcomes for this trial. Yeah, we always care about our subgroups, but uh, here I think the important thing to just know is that there was no difference. They looked at age, sex, exacerbation history, your baseline inhaler use, your eosinophils or your baseline pheno, this idea of what your asthma phenotype is. None of that made a difference in the exacerbation outcome. That's great. So we feel comfortable in all the patients who are coming to us with this. When we looked at the symptoms, the as-needed budesonide formoterol improved symptoms compared to just as-needed albuterol. Statistically, it worsened the symptoms compared to maintenance budesonide, but when you take a closer look, the mean difference between those groups was actually less than the minimum clinically important difference for the test that they used, the ACQ5. And when I took a look at the supplementary data, after the first few visits, both of those groups, the as-needed budesonide formoterol and the maintenance budesonide, were well-controlled after the first few visits anyway. So it doesn't seem like it's uh, a meaningful difference. It seems like it's a difference without a distinction. Yeah. Wow. I like that difference without a distinction. I, I totally agree. You can feel very comfortable telling your patients that this is going to be good for preventing exacerbations and that your symptoms are going to be no different. They're going to be well-controlled on both therapies. And a great point, we always have to think about the test we're using. A big thing, one that comes up for this is like six-minute walk, which is used in research a lot because it's a well-sourced data. It's been correlated with survival. But we have to think about statistically significant difference and clinically meaningful difference because if your six-minute walk improves statistically significant, but by five feet, that doesn't really matter for the patient's ultimate outcomes. A great parsing through the supplement there. And then I think there's one final takeaway that we discussed and you were telling me about is something about the adherence. So I was hoping you could just share that with the group as well. Yeah, the interesting thing here, because the inhalers had these electronic trackers, they were able to see how well people adhere to the maintenance budesonide. And the long and short of it is that it was not very good. They used 56% maintenance uh, adherence, which... I think on the one hand is obviously less than we would like. We always shoot for a hundred, but I think is pretty realistic. Remembering to use an inhaler twice a day, every day is pretty hard. And a lot of our patients struggle with that. Yeah. Even another point to try to maybe just go for the PRN so that you're uh, making it a little easier on patients, maybe saving them a little bit of money too, if they, yeah. they don't need the maintenance, if they're not using it as much as well. All right, Luke, this was really great. Thank you all for listening. Get out there and have your mild asthma patients on PRN combined ICS and beta agonists for uh, bronchodilation. And join us next time for our next Rapid Fire Journal Club.